Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. This week marks the start of fall, and while pictures of pumpkin lattes and sweaters may dance in your head, our reality is we will not see much of a change. The National Climate Prediction Center is forecasting a 35% chance of an above-average season when we talk temperatures, and just about equal chances for rainfall. After October 15th, those chances come down from 30 to 60% now to 30 to 40%, hoping for a little less humidity. Meanwhile, in this issue, our bees are having a hard time surviving, but now there's a new buzz about a possible remedy to a troubling malady. Can a new non-chemical treatment help battle a parasite killing honeybees? Meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez has the story. Plus, mosquitoes can be blamed for many illnesses. Now, a controversial method is using science to help eradicate those sicknesses. Um, it makes up just about 4% of the mosquito population in the Keys, but is responsible for virtually all of the mosquito-borne uh, disease transmission to, to humans. Meteorologist Erica Delgado has the stinging story as we kick off our insect edition of Weather or Not. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the storm station, Seven News. Bees play an important role in our food cycle, but lately, a deadly one-two punch is knocking them out. Here's Vivian Gonzalez. Honeybees pollinate about a third of all crops and are literally responsible for the food we all eat. Without them, the production of everything from almonds to zucchinis would come to a stop, which is why it's very alarming that honeybees have been dying at increasing rates in the last decade. And two main factors are pesticides and parasites. The field of entomology is buzzing about new research showing that a non-chemical treatment less harmful to bees and animals, including humans, could be the answer farmers and beekeepers have been waiting for. Dr. Jennifer Hahn, along with her colleagues, Dr. Steve Shepard and Dr. Nick Nager from Washington State University have developed a fungus that could be a really big advance in the treatment of a bee killing parasite. I'm a meteorologist in Miami, Florida. So from the other extreme, <laughs> yeah. we're actually grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk about other science related issues and how weather ties into a lot of a lot of what's going on, climate change, everything that we don't get to do on a daily basis. So we're excited about that. The team's excited. And we launched this podcast in June to mark the start of the hurricane season. So every Tuesday, we have a new episode that is airing, so. One of the interesting things, I mean, you mentioned climate change, and I think if you called, you know, almost any beekeeper in California right now, they would oh. they would have a lot to say. Uh, these droughts out here are devastating for the beekeepers and for the, the, the queen production industry. Um, in particular, you know, you've read or heard that you know, 30 or 40% of the bees die every year. 
And those, um, those bees have to be replaced and beekeepers buy queens and they split their colonies and you know, put the new queens in uh, to, to increase their colony numbers. And the, so the people that produce the queens are kind of a, a key cog in this, this whole industry uh, that allows beekeepers to deal with a 30 or 40% a year loss. I mean, you can imagine being a cattle rancher and losing 30% of your cows every year, you'd never make it. Wow. But beekeepers can you know, pay $30 or $35 for a new queen. They can put a lot of labor in and they can split their colonies and have them ready next year for pollination. And then they try again to make it through the winter and then maybe have to deal with a 30% loss or whatever they're dealing with. So the drought has really exacerbated all the, uh, the difficulties of uh, being a beekeeper in these times because right. it affects their forage, as you might imagine. Yes. Correct. No rain comes, no flowers. Yeah. yeah I was and we're getting too much rain over here. Well, a little dose of uh, disturbance, tropical disturbance. So our rain has been nonstop over here. Uh, I hope we can, can transfer some, some of that over there. Way? That would be great. <laughs> yeah, there are just reports on the wheat harvest this year. It's it's down 40 to 60%. So I think we'd say 50% uh, here in the, in the Palouse, you know, so... This is a big area of, of soft white wheat production for Asia. And because uh, of the drought, yeah, we're just the, the drought, yields are yeah. awful. We, we, we've gotten half our normal rainfall. And this wheat is dependent on this rainfall in the spring to, um, to, make, a, to make a full crop. And we just didn't get it. Wow. So, Hoping for rain, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. fingers crossed. That the Keep pattern going. changes. Some years ago, you know, I was contacted by Paul Stamets and Fungi Perfecti, and we, we, we started this collaboration. And as part of it, we were able to get funding to, to look into both the fungal extract work that Nick's taking the lead in and the metarhizium work that Jennifer is taking the lead in. And we brought them on as postdocs and were able to uh, make good progress. So it's just kind of gone beyond that. My work is, uh, I'm really a population geneticist and more interested in the evolution of honeybees, although that seems like a while back. And part of my job was uh, beekeeping extension here, where we're trying to find solutions to problems that beekeepers had. So we've always done some, what we might call applied research. And the, one, of the, one of the nice things about both both their projects and, and really kind of the, the way they're building their labs is that it started off, you might say, as this kind of a, an applied problem, but there are some very fundamental biological uh, and evolutionary aspects to it that, that just make it a really you know, rich area for the future to mine. So, I, I mean, the title of the paper that that Jennifer's first author on, you know, has the word directed evolution in there. So, you know, we, br we bred bees here for 20 something years and now, now we're breeding fungus to, <laughs> to fight the Varroa. Yeah. And, you know, Nick's work, some of the, we're getting these great results and part of it is to try to understand the actual fundamental, what's going on, you know, as far as how these things work. So, so I think they've both tapped into, uh, 
projects who can keep them busy for quite a while. I really think it's important for people to understand why bees are so important, especially to our food chain. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, not only do bees make honey, a food product that most of us know, but bees are incredibly vital to the American food supply system because of their pollination efforts. Honeybees pollinate fruits, vegetables, and many other plants and are ultimately responsible for one out of every three bites of food that we eat. And it's not only one out of three bites of food, it is some of the healthiest foods that we have, uh, including berries and apples and pears and many different vegetables. All of these are bee pollinated. I would like to add, bees are not only important to the food that we eat directly, mm -hmm. but they do a lot of pollination services for foods that are later on fed to um, things like cattle that we end up eating eventually, but maybe not so directly. What is this that a parasite is really hurting the bees? So um, the honeybees are facing quite a few threats, including, you know, changing landscapes and whatnot. But the biggest threat I would say to honeybees right now is a parasite called Varroa destructor. Okay. If the name says it all, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so how do the hives get infected by the Varroa mite? Hives can get infected by Varroa through a couple different ways. One of the ways is that as a hive is dying from Varroa and the viruses that Varroa transmit, the bees become very sick and disoriented. And in fact, we know that the viruses that Varroa spread can get into the brain of the bee. The end result of this is that bees have navigation errors and they try to fly to the wrong hive. And by going to the wrong home, they end up spreading the mites and the viruses from hive to hive. As that host hive slowly dies off from mites killing it, then this leaves honey that is unprotected in the hive. At that point, bees from two miles away may find this unprotected honey and start trying to bring it back to their own home. During that phase, the mites can find these robber bees, jump onto them, and uh, get a ride back to that bee's home. In what way do the mites affect the bees? Any sort of behavioral changes I can elaborate on that? Yeah, so to describe how Varroa is so bad for the bees, I want you to imagine having a parasite on you at all times, but imagine it's the size of like a dinner plate. And okay. that's kind of analogous to what the Varroa mite is to the bee. It's that size that's kind of attached to them and feeding off of their um, fat bodies, which is can have major devastating effects because not only is it feeding on the honeybee, but it's also a vector of many of the really bad honeybee viruses. So it's transmitting diseases as well as feeding off of them. And the way they feed is they use what we call like their piercing rasping mouth parts where they literally pierce a hole into their skin and then just start feeding on the fat right below there. Okay. And this can have a lot of really bad effects because this fat body that they feed on is important in proper immune function. So when the varroa feeds, it makes the honeybees more susceptible to diseases and viruses. And it's also really important in pesticide detoxification. So if honeybees encounter pesticides as they're foraging, and if they're infected on varroa, it makes them less able to deal with the environment, if you will. 
And what else does it do? Yeah, the, the end result in the end is that varroa feeding on honeybees will shorten their lifespan, reduce their work rate and their foraging rate, and just generally crash a colony because the bees are living less time and doing less work. And the general rule of thumb is if your hive has varroa and there is inevitability that it will, and you do not treat for varroa, it's inevitable more or less that your hive will die because of varroa. And how have beekeepers been treating the colonies over the last few decades? Beekeepers have largely been surviving thanks to fairly harsh chemical miticides that they apply directly to the colonies. So beekeepers have been in a position where they have needed to apply pesticides to their own colonies to kill varroa just to keep their colonies alive. Uh, However, we are currently in a situation where the mites are evolving pesticide resistance to many of the miticides that are currently used. So uh, basically, they target specific species and control a large variety of pests by using these basically toxic chemicals, in other words. Yes. Okay. So we know that biopesticides are less toxic to animals and humans, and it appears that a microbe such as a fungus has had success in killing the varroa destructor. So what type of fungus is now being used? So specifically, we are using a fungus from the genus Metarhizium. This is a well-known, what we call an entomopathogenic fungi, which is a mouthful. But if you break it down, entomo, if you think of entomology, insects, pathogenic, meaning a pathogen. So it's a fungus that can infect and kill insects. And how is the fungus being applied into the hives? We are currently working on different delivery systems. Uh, When we were initially doing experiments, we were treating hives with fungus growing on petri dishes. Uh, However, we know that ultimately for this to be a usable product, we have to grow it in larger quantities. And so we have started to grow the fungus on grain. And then we've been putting this grain with living spore producing fungus uh, directly into the hives Uh, Currently, we're testing systems using bags of this spore-relating grain, um, strips, and uh, patties. So several different ways that beekeepers can add the spores to their hive. We do not yet know which is the most effective route of delivering the spores. And I think I, I was reading on an article, the grain that you're using is brown rice? That is correct. We are exploring a couple of different options, including brown rice and some barley. And how does this fungus work once you put it into the hive? Um, In general, the way this fungus works is the spore is the infectious agent. So the spore lands on the exoskeleton of the mite, the skin, if you will, of the mite, where it lands and then through various chemical cues and different interactions, it recognizes it's on a host. And from there it germinates. So spore germinates very similar to the way you would picture a seed germinating. Instead of growing a root the way a typical plant does, it grows what we call like a germination tube. And so then this germination tube more or less drills through the skeleton of the varroa mite where it 
proliferates inside the varroa and kills the insect from the inside out, basically. Okay, and weather does play a role as well in some way with the treatment process and I guess with the mites. So why set out also to create a fungus strain that is heat tolerant? Other researchers had known for decades that these fungi could infect and kill mites, but there is a problem. Most of these fungi are soil-dwelling organisms that like the cool, moist temperatures found in the soil. When you put these fungi into beehives, beehives are very hot. They're near your body temperature. And so as a result, these fungi would die off very quickly. So part of our research effort was to develop a strain of fungus that could live in the hot temperatures of a beehive and by living longer, control mites better. Now, after comparing this fungal infection treatment to the more common, more conventional chemicals that have been used by beekeepers, what was the outcome? So we got comparable control to oxalic acid, which is a very common method that beekeepers use to control varroa. So it's very promising right now. And this summer we are doing additional trials and we're comparing it against a few other common treatments that beekeepers use, including HopGuard, which is an alternative as well. Yes, uh, currently our results show that we are achieving fairly comparable control to uh, to what beekeepers can get with currently available treatments. But we're hoping that this control with the fungus does so with less negative effects on the bees. Now, I know certain plants and flowers get treated for fungal infections. And I know this firsthand since I collect orchids. I'm an avid orchid collector. I've also seen bees pollinate a few and then get these seed pods, which are really incredible. And I know if I were to take that to a lab, eventually with time, I would know what kind of orchid it will be and maybe what flower species it was pollinated with. But out of curiosity, do you think that the bees can transfer some of this fungus to other plants? It is certainly possible for bees to transfer spores around from plant to plant. And in fact, there are some private companies right now looking at using honeybees to deliver beneficial fungi to plants. So this can certainly happen. However, with the fungus that we are using to treat bees, we are treating the bees in the brood nest area, the area where they have the baby bees and where most of the parasite problem occurs. So we do not think that too many spores are getting onto the forager bees and leaving the hive with the way we are currently treating, Uh, although it is possible. We haven't done the experiments yet to see just how far it could travel. I'm curious to to see the outcome of that as well. What comes next for your research? What do you hope will come out? One of the things that we hope will occur in the future is that we hope that our research serves as a bit of a, a beacon for other researchers to do similar work. The fungi that we use to treat hives, these fungi are very environmentally friendly but they frequently have drawbacks to where they are too affected by the environmental conditions. They are susceptible to heat or to UV radiation from the sun and so on. 
And so we have shown that through laboratory work and selection, we can evolve the fungus to do better in these situations, including in warmer environments. So we hope that other researchers are taking note and noticing that these biopesticides that have a lot of promise, that they can be improved. And this could be very important in an era of climate change to have these biopesticides that can survive warmer temperatures. This is really fascinating research and more people need to be aware that the safety and security of our food supply is technically in danger and our most important pollinators aren't healthy. So people should be aware of that and different techniques uh, that are non-toxic, just like your research is something to look forward to in the future of saving these pollinators. We could not agree more and we thank you for your efforts to help bring this to light. For Dr. Shepard, Dr. Hahn, and Dr. Nager, this is Weather or Not. I'm meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez. All right. Well, thank you so much. Hi, have a great day. You too. Take care. Thanks, Vivian. Coming up next, as we just learned, pesticides can do more harm than good in order to keep insects in check. Now, A new plan has experts trying to keep the mosquito population under control by using other genetically modified mosquitoes to do the dirty work. That's coming up next. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station, 7 News. Mosquitoes can spread some serious illnesses, and now experts are putting science to work, releasing altered mosquitoes across the Keys. Erica Delgado with the story. Mosquitoes. Most of us have had our share of annoying encounters with these pesky little insects, whether you spend significant time outdoors or not. While most of these itchy encounters are harmless, some mosquito bites could actually lead to the spread of serious diseases. But what if I told you that a release of even more mosquitoes in our backyards could actually reduce the threat of the spreading diseases? That's what our friends at Oxitec a biotechnology company that develops genetically modified mosquitoes to assist an insect and in turn disease control, well, that's what they tell us. I had the opportunity to speak with Meredith Bensom, head of public affairs at Oxitech, and she gave us the itchy truth about these new friendly mosquitoes that are being released in our own very backyards. Joining me today is Meredith Fensom, Head of Public Affairs at Oxitec, who is here to tell us a little more about how genetically modified mosquitoes actually work. Hi, Meredith. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Hi, Erica. Thanks for the invitation. We're happy to be here. We're happy you're here, too. So this is all very new to many people who aren't in the biotechnology world, I guess I should say. Tell us first a little bit about Oxitec and what exactly the company does. So Oxitec spun out of Oxford University 19 years ago, believe it or not, in 2002. So we have very innovative technologies, but they are not new. Uh, We work primarily with insects to help control pests that spread disease, damage crops, and harm livestock. 
So 19 years, I mean, that, that is impressive. It is. It is. And, and, and then I guess just over the years, this whole, you know, the genetically modified mosquito just kind of came about. Tell us a little bit about that project. Sure. So here in the Florida Keys, we are working with the Aedes aegypti mosquito. It is an invasive species in Florida and can spread diseases like dengue, Zika, chikungunya, yellow fever. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes up just about 4% of the mosquito population in the Keys, but is responsible for virtually all of the mosquito-borne disease transmission to, to humans. Everyone is familiar with the mosquito. At one point you've gotten bit, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, but what exactly are genetically modified mosquitoes? So what we've done, we work with, with male mosquitoes. Our, our mosquitoes are male because males do not bite. You have never been bitten by a mosquito. So, so we have friendly males. We have non-biting males that are emerging from our just add water mosquito boxes and they carry a self-limiting gene. So when they mate with the invasive pest females, the female offspring of those encounters cannot survive. And that is how we are able to drive down the population of this dangerous mosquito very quickly. And it's very targeted. We're going after this mosquito only. Um, So other mosquitoes, native species, uh, beneficial insects like bees and butterflies are unharmed. And as far as the Mosquito Project, I know that I read a little bit about it. It's been a few years coming uh, down on the ground, but have these mosquitoes already been released in the Keys? They have. So just to give a little bit of history, Oxytech was first invited to the Keys about 10 years ago when there was a dengue outbreak in Key West that could not be uh, controlled. So we were in the regulatory process in the United States for about a decade and received our final approvals last year. And then this spring in April, um, we put out the first of our Just Add Water mosquito boxes. And uh, in early May, we saw our first males emerging from those boxes. That's so cool. Now, was it over just a portion of the lower keys or was it just all throughout the island chain? So this is a, it's a small pilot project and we're mostly in the middle keys and, and we're in a number of small areas. They're all listed on our website, um, but it's primarily in in the middle keys and we have small project sites for um, the project A that began first, and those are single point release sites. And then project B, which is also uh, ongoing now, it's bigger and we have multi-point release sites um, for project B. So the release um, back in the spring won't be the only release uh, with this specific project in the Keys. That's right. So we had two disruptions um, because of the tropical storms with both uh, Elsa and then tropical, well, it was hurricane, then tropical storm Elsa, and then with tropical storm Fred, we paused and restarted project operations. So there was a little bit of a delay, but both projects have resumed and they are ongoing now and, and will continue 
through the mosquito season, which is, is well underway right now in the Florida Keys. Oh yeah, very tropical indeed. Now, are there any plans to, I know that this is a specific project right now in the Florida Keys. Do you know of any plans to release um, these modified mosquitoes anywhere else in the state or, or in the country really? Sure. Yes. So we have been invited um, by 10 mosquito control districts in California to pilot our technology there. And uh, we have applied to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Um, That's our regulator at the federal level in the United States to be able to do pilot projects in California next year. And we made that announcement um, a few weeks ago. And we think that the EPA public comment period will probably open soon. Wow, that's 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 incredible. I mean, I'm assuming, you know, as this continues to grow and you see the success rate with it, Who's to say this can't even be beneficial around the world? Absolutely. And we're working in Brazil already. We've been active there for for years, but but there's definitely a need. And the interesting thing about California is this mosquito, which is invasive, was first noticed in California. It was first identified in 2013. Uh, So just eight years ago, and in that time, the mosquito has spread to more than 20 counties in in California. So it's a a new visitor and and not a welcome one um, to that state. No, and and spreading quickly as it usually does when, um, whether it's invasive or not. Now, these genetically modified mosquitoes, I know you mentioned um, they're there to basically limit the growth of a certain uh, viruses and whatnot, are, can they contract any other diseases that could possibly pose any risk for humans? The genetically modified ones, I mean. Okay, so our mosquitoes, since since male mosquitoes do not bite, um, and, and in fact, they, they lack the, the mouth parts to do so, they really cannot bite. They are not the mosquitoes that, that spread um, disease. It's the females that spread disease um, because they, they, they bite and they have to take a, a, a blood meal to be able to, to lay their eggs. Um, but it's interesting that you ask about other diseases because we have a veterinarian who's really involved with our project here in the Keys and his interest in this project is, is animals and people's pet because this same mosquito, the Aedes aegypti spreads heartworm to dogs and cats and, and, and other animals. Okay. So, I mean, this is beneficial, not only to humans, but also I mean, to animals, as you said, and closer to home to our pets. Absolutely. This is really incredible. Just to think about how far we've come around the world and how we can actually begin to limit the spread of of diseases like this just with the genetically modified mosquito. I mean, that to me is absolutely fascinating. What what you guys at Oxitec are doing is it's very, very admirable. Well, thank you. We we enjoy the the work. We, We feel really good about it. Yeah, as you should. Meredith, thank you so much for educating us on these friendly mosquitoes, as you just mentioned. This is a subject that's very new to much of the world outside of of biotechnology, really. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us, and we wish you all the best of luck with this. Thanks again for the opportunity, Erica. The 7 Weather Team would like to thank our friends at OxyTech for taking the time to speak with us and for their passion in insect control. 
We wish you luck in your ongoing project down in the Florida Keys and in all related future projects. That's all for now. From the 7 Weather Team, I'm meteorologist Erica Delgado. Thank you, Erica. Next week on Weather or Not, Fort Lauderdale could soon be digging in to tackle a major problem and the effort could save you plenty of time and traffic. And something is happening to dragonflies. Earth's climate is changing faster than ever before. Tons of documented research shows increases in temperatures at Earth's surface, as well as in the atmosphere and oceans. The biggest reason is primarily due to human activities, emitting heat-trapping greenhouse gases from fossil fuel combustion and deforestation. And now climate change may rob male dragonfly wings of their dark spots. Next week on Whether or Not, I talk to Dr. Michael Moore, an evolutionary ecologist at Washington University in St. Louis, as we shine the spotlight on male dragonflies and how their dating life is being affected and causing them to evolve and adapt to rising temperatures. Vivian Gonzalez will bring us that story when our next issue drops September 28th. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7weather and of course live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.